the most important message that that the church has, that Christians have, is the gospel. There is nothing that is more important. Uh, we love truth here. Uh, we love God's Word here. But the most important truth that we find in God's Word is the truth of the gospel, which is a word that means good news. So today's text, chapter 6, 1 through 10, actually gives us the gospel. We're going to have four sections that we're going to look at. And let me tell you what the section headings are. And, and see now, and see as we go through this, that we have an articulation of the good news of the gospel uh, right here in Genesis chapter 6. First, verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4 will tell us about the state of the earth at the time of Noah, this very early point in human history. So we will read of the state of the earth. But verses 1 through 4 will deal primarily with a a physical description, an outward description, um, kind of a surface level. This is what is going on on the earth. This is what people are doing. This is the activity they're engaged in on the earth. And and it's giving us an understanding of what's taking place, the state of the earth. And then verse 5 is God's insight. God's commentary into not just as what, what is happening on a surface level, but sort of a subterranean level. Okay, what's going on underneath? What's going on in the heart of man? What is going on within the souls of people that is leading to what we read in verses 1 through 4? So 1 through 4, the state of the earth physically. Uh, verse 5, the state of the earth spiritually. Verses 6 and 7, we read about God's response to the state of the earth. Namely, his emotional response and his reactive plan. Okay? We get insight into how God feels about what is going on in the earth. And then we read about what his plan is in reaction to the state of the earth. And then finally, verses 8 through 10, we find God's surprising grace in spite of the state of the earth. So... Let's pray and we'll go through each of those sections and see the gospel. Father in heaven, thank you for gathering us this morning. And thank you for um, not just gathering us together without meaning or without purpose, but having great purpose and therefore bringing great meaning to our time together today. God, thank you that you are in control and that your ways are above our ways and beyond our ways so that while we all came here with reasons, that you may have a completely different reason. God, we pray that you would do a work in my soul and in the souls of everyone that's here today. God, we have come in here uh, from all different stages and uh, walks of life, and we've come in here feeling all different kinds of things emotionally and probably believing all sorts of things. And we came in here not only as bodies, but as souls. And so we ask, God, that your word, uh, with the strength and power of your Holy Spirit, would change our souls for the better. That if there is not peace, you'd bring peace. And if there is not hope for someone here, that you'd bring hope. If there is not a rest, that you would bring rest. If there is people here today who are, whether they know it or not, who are far from you, God, that you would bring them close. And we pray that you would do that through the preaching of your word. We pray that you would do it as you have been doing it since the very beginning of creation. That your words would go out, that they wouldn't just be words, but they would go out with the power of you, with the power of your Holy Spirit, and they would go past ears and set deeply in our hearts. This is our hope and prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, please open up Genesis chapter 6, and we'll start by looking at verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. 
Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. These are the kinds of Sundays where you're thankful that we preach expositionally because we go verse by verse. Because this is one of those texts that, frankly, we'd probably just skip. This is, this is beyond Jerry Springer right here. Let me read this again. Verses 1 through 4. And again, to summarize here, um, just a simple summary here, not crafts, but a simple summary. Whatever is taking place here, that the sons of God are hooking up with the daughters of men and their offspring or their children are described as the Nephilim or these mighty men of old or the men of renown. So let me let me read that one more time with that summary in mind and then we'll try to answer the many questions that might be coming up. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, "My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh." His days should be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So this is a very cryptic text that leaves us with a lot of questions. Three in particular that we'll try to answer. The first question would be, who are the Sons of God and the daughters of men. Who is that referring to? Second question, who are the Nephilim? Who are these mighty men? Who are these men of renown? And the third question would be, what did God mean when he said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, thankfully, first let me say that the point of this passage is not dependent on us getting the answers to those questions right. Okay, the, the point of the passage is not dependent on whether or not we get those answers right. Derek Hidner said, the point of this cryptic passage, whichever way we take it, is that a new stage has been reached in the progress of evil with God's bounds overstepped in yet another realm. So that is the point of the passage, that there's evil going on in the world, that there's unprecedented wickedness going on in the world. And so that point will stay the point regardless of our answers to the questions I just posed. But nevertheless... Nevertheless, we should try to understand what this is talking about. So let's, let's make an effort. Question number one. Who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? And there are basically two popular positions that have been taken throughout history. So we'll look at each of them. The first one, they are sons of Seth and daughters of Cain. There are two lines now in humanity that we've seen. There is the godly line that loves God coming from Adam and Eve. And there is an ungodly line that does not love God coming from Adam and Eve. And they are coming from Adam and Eve's son Cain, the line of Cain, the ungodly line, and the line of Seth or the godly line, the line that loves God. And these are the two offsprings that are existing in the world at this time. So maybe, maybe this is a reference to those two offsprings. And so the daughters of men would be the daughters of Cain, these ungodly women. And the sons of God, perhaps, are the sons of Seth. And they are godly men. And this would be the account then of the godly line of Seth intermarrying with the ungodly line of Cain, which would give us explanation 
of what happened to the godly line of Seth. Because remember, you, you just heard Pastor Curtis read that there is, there is no more righteousness on the earth. There are not any godly people. And we saw last week there were some godly people. This line of Seth. So what happened to them? Well, maybe, maybe it was this intermarriage between these godly men from Seth and these ungodly women from Cain. And as they married one another, like the wives of Solomon did, 1 Kings 11.4 talks about, when these godly men married ungodly women who worshipped other gods, they stole the hearts of these men away from God and after other gods. And so what's happening here is just like when Eve saw the fruit and it was good and she ate it. These men see these women and they look good. They are attractive. And so they're taking them to be their wives. This would be the most popular view. It's the most popular view. And it is also the the view of most uh, giant theologians in history. So for what that's worth. Uh, Some of the greatest theologians in history have held to this view. And as Francis Schaeffer notes, there is a constant prohibition in Scripture. There is a constant prohibition against the people of God marrying those who are not the people of God. So that, that interpretation would be consistent with a theme that is throughout your entire Bible. And namely, that is... People who love God, while they should love people who don't love God, they need to be careful how, how intertwined their lives become because they will very easily be led away from God and not lead them to God. Which is why even in the New Testament, there is warning and prohibition against someone who loves Jesus marrying someone who doesn't love Jesus because more than you love your spouse, you should love Jesus. That's most important. And if you claim to love Jesus and you marry someone who doesn't love Jesus, you're asking for a lot of trouble and heartache in your life. So that would be uh, that would be consistent with what Scripture has to say. There is another view that is much more fun than that. The second view in regard who are the sons of God and the daughters of men is that they are angels and women. They are angels and women. Here's what this view would propose. In this view, the sons of God... Hang with me. You might want to close your eyes. This is almost, it's kind of complicated. In this view, the sons of God are the spirits in prison whom Christ descended into hell to preach to between His crucifixion and resurrection, who were angels, supernatural beings, that came down to earth, copulated with human women, which led to demigod offspring known as the Nephilim. I'll read that one more time. This would be the second position that explains who the sons of God and daughters of men are. In this view, the sons of God are the spirits in prison whom Christ descended into hell to preach to between His crucifixion and resurrection who were angels that came down to earth copulated with human women which led to demigod offspring known as the Nephilim. So this is my view. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) So let me take you through this. What a wild set of verses we have here. And let me make a case. Let me make a case for that actually being what is taking place. Now, the first argument for that interpretation that some of you still don't get. The first thing to know is that that phrase, sons of God, That phrase only shows up three times in your Old Testament. In Job chapter 1, verse 6, in Job chapter 2, verse 1, and in Job chapter 38, verse 7. That is the only time in the Old Testament the phrase, sons of God, appears. And each of those three times, it clearly means angels. So for someone who's really into language and linguistics, that right there would settle the argument and lead them to interpret sons of God as angels in Genesis chapter 6. It's what theologically is called a very strong linguistic argument. 
as well the earliest translations that we have of the Old Testament including the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation that was written 250 years before Christ. They translated sons of God as angels, and they were also, and had the luxury that we don't, of looking at other writings that were written in the same Hebrew language, and over and over and over again in those books, consistently, sons of God always means angels. And third, the argument would be, Let us read quickly three New Testament passages that may be referring to this text. I think they do. Three New Testament texts that look back at Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4, that lead us to believe that this actually is an account of angels coming down from heaven. The first is Jude verses 6 and 7. Now, by the way, here's what these verses are doing. These verses explain what Christ was doing when between his crucifixion and his resurrection, he descended into hell to proclaim his victory over sin and demons. For those of you that are in church for a long time, or maybe grew up in church, you may have learned the Apostles' Creed. And there may have been part of that Apostles' Creed that sounded really strange to you. When the Apostles' Creed, when they declared that Jesus, between dying on the cross and being raised from the dead, descended into hell. And you may have wondered, what does that mean? Well, these three verses describe what that means and what Jesus did between his crucifixion and his resurrection. And I think they plainly connect to Genesis chapter 6, that Jesus descended and preached to these angels, to these spirits that tried to overthrow his promise in Genesis chapter 6. So let me read these three texts, Jude 6 and 7. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling... He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So to summarize that text, Jude is talking about angels who left their proper place and came out of their proper place and sinned grievously. And I think it's talking about Genesis 6, 1 through 4. This was the grievous sin. And Jude compares whatever their sin was, it doesn't describe it in Jude 6, but he does compare their sin to the sexual, unnatural sin that was taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think this would be the angel's desire for earthly women. There are two more texts, 1 Peter three nineteen and 20. In which he went and proclaimed, now this talks about Jesus descending into hell and preaching. Now Jesus does not descend into hell and preach to those who are in hell and, and, and calling them to believe the gospel. This isn't what this preaching is. This is Jesus upon his death on the cross going to a particular people who are in judgment and proclaiming His victory over sin and Satan. So He's got a particular people who are in hell that He is going to proclaim His victory to, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So he's preaching to spirits here who were rebellious in the day of Noah. And lastly, Second Peter 2, 4-6. through six. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. 
So I would say that, in fact, the sons of God are, as the Old Testament always refers to them, they are angels who came down to be with these earthly women. The offspring that was produced, we are told here, was the Nephilim. This word only shows up one other time in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33. And the word seems to imply that they were giants. These were gigantic people. They were mighty men of old. They were men of renown. They were men of infamy. Not necessarily known for the good that they did, but they were known for the evil that they did. Now that would make sense. Now I know none of this makes sense. But within this not making sense, that would make sense that if you're going to have these gigantic, mighty men who are walking the face of the earth, that they would be the offspring of something natural and supernatural. Please hang with me. So I think... I think, and again, don't worry if you're not tracking, this is not imperative for the point of this text. But I do think when we put these New Testament texts together, along with Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, that this is the view. And this is why I think it's important and why it's good and precious. I think that what you're reading about in these first four verses of chapter 6 is a big plan of Satan to stop the godly offspring that was prophesied from God in Genesis 3.15. Sin came into the world and God said, I'm going to rescue my people. And how did God say He was going to rescue His people? He would rescue them through godly offspring, which would eventually lead to a rescuer. And so I think the sending of these demons, the sending of these angels was an effort allowed by God, but it was an effort on Satan's part to overthrow the promises of God and to stop the godly offspring and to stop the rescuer from coming, which would explain why Jesus went and preached a sermon to these spirits in prison. Because his sermon would have been, you lost. I won. So I think, I think that's what we're finding. But regardless, this is either an account of the inner marriage of the righteous with the unrighteous, or it is an account of a conspiracy between Satan and angels to overthrow God's promise of godly offspring. The third question, what did God mean when he said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for his flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Well, that can mean one of two things. Number one, it was about 120 years before the flood at this point. So God could be saying that I'm going to give you 120 years and then my judgment is coming. Or it could mean that God is here shortening the average lifespan of a human being to about 120 years. This would be consistent today, right? The longest anybody ever lives is, you know, right around 120 years. And what we just looked at last week in Genesis chapter 5 is that men were living 800, 900 years. So either it's 122 years, it's a ticking clock until judgment comes, or God is shortening the average lifespan of man. Again, the point. Whatever is happening here, it's not good. So that is the point. So everything else went over your head and made you kind of sick. Whatever is taking place here, it is not good. It is great sin that precipitates the flood. So whatever is happening here, it is unprecedented wickedness that precipitates the flood. It is the increasing corruption of mankind. So verse 5 now. If that's what's taking place, verses 1 through 4, physically on the surface of the earth, this is the sin. Now verse 5, we have God's commentary on what's taking place. It's like a subterranean view. What's underneath all of this? Okay, this is what is happening. Verse 5. The Lord saw... And remember, God sees the heart. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
So verses 1 through 4, this is what is happening on the earth, and it's not good. And verse 5, this is why that is happening on the earth. Because God looks and sees that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intentions of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Or if you have a New International Version, it says it this way. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. This is what God sees. And of course, God sees all of this. The Lord saw. God sees all of this. God doesn't just see the the righteous and unrighteous deeds that we see. God doesn't just see the good that is done and the evil that is done that we see. God perceives the human heart. God sees the wellspring from which everything flows. Have you ever done something that looks good, but you knew it wasn't good, and someone gave you a compliment for doing good, but you knew it wasn't good? You ever done something that looked really good, but you had totally impure motives? You did it because you wanted to be recognized by other people. You did it because you wanted to be complimented by other people. You wanted your reputation to go up. And then people came and they gave you exactly what you wanted. Right? You've learned this. You're like, wow, it works. It works. This is why we keep doing it. And those people came and they, and they gave you what you wanted. But have you ever had that happen? But, but inside, you, you, you felt something. And there was part of you that didn't even like the compliment because you knew it wasn't really true. You knew that it didn't really flow from pure motives. Well, God looks and God sees the heart. And when God looked down on the face of the earth, this is his commentary on what he saw taking place, which is dramatic when you compare it to Genesis 1.31. The, other, the last time we heard this phrase, the Lord saw. Then after creation, remember the Lord saw all that he created and it was very good. This is a sharp Contrast. Now God looks and it is very evil. It has gone from very good to very evil. Look at these three words in that verse. Focus on three words that are used to describe how, how bad is it. Every, only, and continually. Every, only, continually. Do you hear that? Every intention of the heart, only evil all the time. This is serious. Every intention of the heart, only evil, how often? All the time, continually. Now here's a question to ask ourselves. This is clearly an account of the wickedness of all men before the flood, right? This is an account of the wickedness of all men on the face of the earth earth before the flood so here's the question is there a difference between their world and our world that's a good question to ask so with god's commentary on the world would it be the same today as it was back in the day of noah or do we live in a different world is our world different from noah's world Another way of asking that, is the degree of wickedness the same today? Or, here's the other option, or did something in man fundamentally change after the flood so that man is not this evil anymore? That's the question we have to take to the Bible. Because this is going to be dramatic in how we apply this scripture. Because if we just dismiss it and say, oh, well, those were the pre-floodites... That was them, only evil all the time. But now we're not, we're not those people. Something has fundament, and then what we're saying is that something in man has fundamentally changed since then. Post flood man is different than pre man flood. So is there a difference? And, and the answer is yes and no. Now the first answer is no, in the sense that man is no better today. Nothing in man has changed from Genesis 6-5 to today. And it's only going to take a couple chapters for you to see that nothing had changed in man. 
that every intention of his heart was still only evil and it was all the time. You're going to see that in just a couple chapters and the testimony would be true today as well. There's never anything that changes. But that the, the state of the earth, the state of the hearts of men are no different today than they were then. We don't have anything in the Bible to tell us that something fundamentally changed in man between today and Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Which is big news for us. And that makes us read this with a different sort of intentionality. Now clearly today though, clearly today everything is not as outwardly evil as it seems to be here in Genesis chapter 6. But we could affirm that together. When we look around, maybe the heart, when we look around, we don't see what we seem to see here. And I would say that that's right, but the reason is not because man is better today. The reason is that God's grace is more manifold today. The reason is that God's, this is called God's restraining grace. You see, when we do wicked things, that is a reflection of who we are. When we do good things, that is not a reflection of who we are. When we do wicked things, that is a reflection of who we are at heart. When we do good things, that is a reflection of God's grace in our life and God's work in our life and and, and a, a reminder of His love for us. And it's very common today. We, we see this. And so we see a world where there are pockets and there are places where we see evil, like flood, pre-flood-like evil. But it is not global in the way it was then. That is not because something fundamentally has changed in you and me. It is because God's grace is so restraining today to keep us from being utterly evil. And maybe you don't like that, or maybe you have a different answer, maybe you have a different reason that is is more consistent in your mind with logic and reason, but this is the biblical explanation. This would be the biblical explanation. So if if you can imagine this, what you have before the flood is you have unchecked sin. You have unchecked violence. You have God taking his hands off of of human beings and God allowing human beings to display the effects of maturing sin. We cannot imagine the kind of world that Noah lived in. I liken it. If you've, if you've seen movies like I Am Legend, where you have this character, Robert Neville, who is the last, it seems at, at the beginning of the film, the last you know, human being on the planet, okay? And it's this apocalyptic New York City and, and the only other living creatures, right, are these horrifying zombie monsters and he is alone and the, the rest of the world around him is unchecked sin, unchecked violence, no, nothing good, no conscience. That's probably not far off from Noah and his family in pre-flood earth. This was utter evil. This was utter sin. God letting sin take its course. But the condition and potential of man remains the same today, friends. The condition of man at heart remains the same today. The potential for human beings remains the same today. Thank you, God, we are not utterly evil because of God's restraining grace. But we are, we are totally evil. Which means that evil has affected every part of who we are. There is nothing, well, my heart is good. No, your heart is not good. Your heart is corrupt. Well, my mind is still good. No, your mind is not good. Your mind is corrupt. Oh, my body is good. No, your body is corrupt. Okay, we are totally wicked in that sense, dependent on God's grace. There is nothing good in us. So listen to these. Let me just read through them quickly. These post-flood verses. So Genesis 6-5 now, these are post-flood verses that say the same thing. And that while it may look different 
So we may be tempted to think that man has evolved and we are better. These verses testify that nothing better has happened in here. We just see God's grace more manifold. Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 Kings 8.46 There is no one who does not sin. 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Ecclesiastes 7.20 There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Ecclesiastes 9.3 This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil and there is madness in their hearts while they live and afterward they join the dead. We are unable to save ourselves. Isaiah 64.6 We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not to submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. And it is a deep problem. As Proverbs 4, 23 says, the heart is the wellspring of life. In other words, everything that you and I do, everything that we say, everything that we think, it has a beginning. And that beginning is the core of our being. And it is, biblically speaking, the heart. And the heart, according to Jeremiah seventeen nine, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then Mark seven twenty and 21 says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So all of us have the same perception of what is taking place outwardly in the world today. And we see things that look evil and we see things that look good. There's no disagreement there. But friends, the question is, what is happening in the soul of man? What is happening between man and God? What is the explanation for why things are the way they are today? Maybe some of you are content not to answer that question. But biblically, we have an answer to that question. The world is wicked and evil today because the world is full of human beings. And the world is also good and beautiful today because the world is filled with God. And the good is attributed to God and the wickedness is attributed to human beings. This is not exactly humanism. And it runs very contrary to the ways that we think. And it runs very contrary to the kinds of teachings that we would think up because we want to think highly of ourselves i want to think highly of myself too when i battle this every hour of every day to exalt myself to exalt in myself but when it comes to resources from god we do not have a leg to stand on and so it is no wonder when the bible describes us it describes us as slaves and dead (laughs) what what wonderful descriptions right We are slaves. And Jesus said, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. How many of you have sinned? Don't raise your hand. A slave to sin, Jesus says. And then Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 describes us spiritually speaking that we are dead in sin. Dramatic description to drive home the point of all of these verses and the hundreds, if not thousands more. So this is not a prevailing view today. I would say this is not even a prevailing view in the church today, a Genesis 6-5 sort of view of who we are. I mean, we would agree maybe that man is sick or or we would agree that, well, man does evil things and and man may do wicked things. And we may even declare that, that man is sinful. But the prevailing view, friends, and even amongst Christians, the prevailing view today is that there is a remnant of good within every man. And that is not what we're saying. The prevailing view is that there is 
some good in every human being. There is a there's evil, there's wickedness, but it's not total. There is still some good in every man. And there is this is where it comes out. There is at least enough good in man that gives him the ability to love and choose God, which is a very good thing to do. And if loving God and choosing God and accepting God is a good thing to do, and every Christian would agree that is a very good thing to do, then the temptation is to believe against Scripture that that, that there must be then some good in me that gives me the ability to choose God. But we've got to look somewhere else because the verses we just read make it very clear that there is nothing good in us to tap into to do anything good, let alone the goodest thing we could ever do, which is to choose and love God. So what God is just making clear here, okay, pre-flood, post-flood, again, is this is a very desperate situation. Okay, Martin Luther, when this was his big disagreement with Erasmus of Rotterdam, who held that there was good in man, at least enough good in man that made him inherently capable of doing good, namely choosing to love God. And so what that is, believing that there's enough good in us to choose God, while there's not enough good in others to choose God. That is taking, we would say, a doctrine of free will sinfully too far. Not, to do, not denying that we have wills that are free, but taking it way too far. To saying that there is good in us. And it is that good in us. And from that good in us. That we love God and choose God. Martin Luther said this. Erasmus had argued on behalf of free will. Maintaining that although men and women are sinners. There is nevertheless a certain amount of good within them. Through which they can turn from sin and believe on Christ unto salvation. And for many of you, that's just you don't know there's anything else the Bible says. But this is actually not what the Bible says. Luther maintained that of themselves people can do nothing but sin. And that if any do turn to Christ, it is only because God was already there beforehand enabling and moving them to do it. Some years after this, in writing on Genesis, Luther referred to the earlier exchange and reiterated his position. Without the Holy Spirit and without grace, man can do nothing but sin and so goes on endlessly from sin to sin. But this knowledge of our sin is the beginning of our salvation in that we completely despair of ourselves and give to God alone the glory for our righteousness. Friends, can you see how otherwise we have something to boast in? We have something to brag in if there is good in me that enables me to love God and to choose God and I love God and I choose God and this guy doesn't love God and doesn't choose God then aren't I a better person of course of course but scripture makes clear that there is nothing good in man And if we end there, it is a hopeless situation if God doesn't do more. And thankfully, we have thousands of verses of how God does more. Do you believe this? I mean, I pray you believe this because this will produce in you a proper sense of your need before God. It will leave you with an empty cupboard. Right, they leave you with nothing, nothing else to hold on to or to grab on to but Christ. It will leave you the most prayerful people for your friends who don't know Jesus because you just won't be able to have anything else but Christ and hope that He would work and that He would take a heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. 
it won't allow us if we if we understand this Genesis six five condition of, of me and you, this won't allow us to to come before God based on our sufficiency or based on our performance. It won't allow us to do that. And if you see the people that Jesus received, the people that Jesus received were the people who knew there was nothing good in them. The people that Jesus received were the people who were at the end of their rope, who were totally desperate, and who simply came to Him crying for mercy. With no appeal. No appealing to anything good in them. Not once. But beating their breasts, right? Saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm a sinner, and my only hope is mercy. How does God respond? Verses 6 and 7. To this condition. For you are a people... Sorry. Verse 7. 6. And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So we see two things. God's response to the state of the earth. We see His emotional response and His reactive plan. We see what God sees Right, the sin on the earth, and then we see what God feels, and then we see what God does. Insight into the heart of God. What does He see? He sees sin. And what does God feel? Pain. God is not apathetic to the human condition. God is grieved at the condition of mankind. The words here describe that God feels heart-deep pain. Heart deep pain. He can't say this in a stronger way. For those of you who have agonized, where it's been physical, emotional, spiritual, I mean, it's just hit every category in your life, and it has been deep and abiding pain, and it, it sickened you, we would say that was heart deep pain and suffering. And when God looks at the face of his earth and what his earth has become god feels heart deep pain which should give you insight into how horrible sin is how horrible is sin if even god is not immune to the pain that is caused by it and then god has a plan of how he's going to deal with it Verse 7 again, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now here, if you've been reading through Genesis, here is what we've been waiting for. This is what we have been waiting for. We expected this to happen in the garden. We've been waiting, right, for God to say, enough. We expected God to say it in the garden with Adam and Eve. We expected Him to say it on the field where Abel's blood cried out to Him for justice after Cain murdered Him. We're expecting, because of everything we know from the beginning of our study, that okay, God is just and God is right and God is loving and God is kind. And so here's His creation now becoming more and more sinful And he said at the very beginning that if you disobey me, if you dishonor me, it's not going to go well for you. And the punishment, the consequence is going to be death. Romans 6.23 in the New Testament says the wages of sin is death. That means that when we go our own way and we disobey God and obey us, and when we choose to honor self and not God, and we run from Him and not toward Him, that the right consequence for that is death. It's alienation from God. It is separation from God. It is being away from God, which is where we are running. And that is right. 
and that is just. And yet God has been patient, and we keep getting surprised by God's reaction. But now, where you can feel it, when you come to verse 7, you're thinking, well, I expected this to happen. Frankly, I'm surprised that God held out this long. I'm surprised He didn't decide to blot out mankind earlier. This is a good and right plan. And then you have this word at the beginning of verse 8. But. But. Right, we see this, this small word all the time meaning so much in God's word. It is a huge transition word in your Bible. A huge transition word. And here it is no different. This word but is a very important word where often what we expect to happen is then graciously interrupted. Find this all over your Bible. So here it is, verse 7. Right, Man is sinful. God sees the heart. He is wicked. And so God decides to blot out man from the earth. That is his good and right reactive plan. And then verse 8. But. But. It's an interruption. And verse 8 says this. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Here's the surprising grace. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. James Boyce says, Could a blacker picture of the utter depravity of man and his rebellion against God ever be painted? It is hard to think so. Yet just at this point... When the black thunderclouds of God's wrath against human sin are their most threatening, a small crack appears, grace shines through, and the promise of a new day dawns. God, you're not going to end Adam and Eve. Felt that. God, you're not going to end Cain. We felt that. God, you're not going to end the world. God, you're not going to... We see later, you're not going to end the Israelites. God, when you've become conscious of your own sin, right? God, you're not going to end me. And God interrupts what you might expect a holy and just God to do by bringing His grace. And not doing what we would expect and surprising us by grace. So here was Noah. It says he was a righteous man. And we'll look at him in weeks to come. A righteous man, blameless in his generation. And he walked with God. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. And Noah walked with God. Now, now many people who don't know God and his truth find comfort in this because they think that they are just like Noah. Or that that's the goal. Oh, well, that's me. I'm righteous, and I'm blameless, and I walk with God. Or, okay, so I just need to be righteous, and I just need to be blameless, and I just need to walk with God. And if I do that, I get to get in the boat too. Be like Noah. And this becomes our goal, and this becomes our focus, and this becomes our plan. Be righteous, but we miss something. We miss something. Thank God that verse eight comes before verse nine. This is this is not unintentional by the author. It never is. Every word is inspired by God. Thank God that verse eight comes before verse nine. Did you hear what the first verse was before the description of Noah? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Friends, you know what another word for favor is in your Bible? Grace. So here's God moving forward with his plan to destroy the entire earth. But one man, Noah, found grace in the eyes of God. And then we hear that he is righteous and blameless and walked with God. So thank God that your Bible doesn't say this. And it does not. Thank God the Bible does not say 
Noah was a righteous man and was blameless and walked with God. And so he found favor in the sight of God. Please don't make your Bible say that. This is not what the Bible says. Which came first? Verse 8 or verse 9? Verse 8 comes first. What was first? The, the righteousness, His blamelessness, walking with God, or grace? Grace came first. It does not say Noah was a righteous man and was blameless and walked with God and so he found favor in the eyes of God. This is really important. This is really important. Verse 8 comes before verse 9. God's grace and favor precedes any righteousness, blamelessness in Noah. Here's the kinds of questions that you want to ask here and in the rest of your Bible, but here as it relates to Noah. Did God love Noah because he was righteous or was Noah righteous because God loved him? These are important questions for people in our day obsessed with trying to earn God's favor to grapple. Let me ask it again. Because it depends on how you read these verses. And we subtly invert verse 9 and 8. Did God love Noah because he was righteous? So are we seeing in this text that God favored Noah because he was righteous and blameless and walked with God and no one else did? That is not what it says. It said that the inclination of everyone on the entire face of the planet was only evil all the time. That included Noah. But God set His affection on Noah and changed Noah. But it was God's grace and favor, not anything good in Noah. This is not an account of the last good guy. This is an account of God's grace. Why did God love Noah then? I mean, clearly, Noah was righteous because God loved him. God's favor, God's grace, God's love first. He set his affection on Noah then why did God love him? I don't love anybody unlovable, do you? I mean, come on. You have reasons why you love everybody. I have reasons why I love everybody. By God's grace, some of you have truly grown to love people from the heart, but it didn't start out that way. There was a reason. You made a commitment. You made a covenant to love them. You got to know them. They did great things for you. You found they were a kindred spirit. Whatever it is, but you had reasons. You had reasons why you loved them. The only difference is maybe your children, which I'll get to. Then why does God love Noah? Why does He love Noah? Let me just read you Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, because it answers our question. And let me just ask the question of this verse. Why did God love Israel? Why did God love this family? Why did God love His people that He walks with and He's not walking with anyone else? Verse 7 and 8. Here's God's answer to that question to Israel. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. So the first thing God says was, not you. It's not you, because there's a lot of great nations and you're not one of them. That's his first answer. And then verse 8. Okay, why? Why? God says, this is why I set my affection on you, Israel. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So it says, God has loved you and He's shown His love for you by doing these wonderful things. He saved you, right? But why does God love you? Did you hear the logic? If you break down what He says here, God is saying, I love you because I love you. And this is, this is grace logic. 
This is grace logic. It makes no sense to us, but it makes perfect sense in the heart of God. God loves Noah because God loves Noah. There was nothing good in Noah to draw God to him. God's love for him is unconditional, friends. It is unconditional. God set his affection on Noah. God loved Noah because he loved Noah. God is going to save Noah. And God's going to save Noah because he loves Noah. And God loves Noah because he loves Noah. Does God love Noah because he's good or is Noah good because God loves him? Do we change the heart of God or does God change the heart of man, friends? And why do you love God? Some of you, and I'm going to spoil it just in how I say it. Some of you, by God's grace, love God. (laughs) Do you hear how we just talk? Why do you, those of you who love God, why do you love God? Something good in you? Something that was better in you is the reason why your brother or sister doesn't love God? I mean, they heard the same gospel message. Is it something good in you? Is that what you're hanging on to? Or do you love God because God loved you? How does the Bible answer that question? We love God because He first loved us. God chased you. God hunted you down. God sought after you. God found you. God claimed you. It was God's initiative. Why? Why today does God love you? And the answer is because He loves you. I mean, isn't this how we talk to our kids? And this is our relationship with God. It just sounds like circular reasoning, right? You talk like a, to a kid, like, I know it doesn't make any sense. Why do you love? Because I love you. This is God's answer to His people. Was it because of this? Because, I mean, because I, because I'm, I'm, I'm smart. I know I'm pretty smart. I know I'm smarter than that guy. No wonder you don't love him. I don't love him. Because I'm smart? Some of you think there's maybe an attraction in you. I'm attractive. I'm pretty put together. I'm pretty, pretty sociable. I've, I've achieved a lot. I've accomplished a lot of things. Or, 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 or many Christians just hang on to this. It's because I chose you. Because I chose you. Because I pulled the trigger when no one else would. Because I understood what no one else understood. Because I was more open spiritually than, than, than the other people were. I took the first step. I walked down the aisle. I raised my hand. Now, you may have done those things, but friends, there's much more to it than that. So God doesn't love you and hasn't set his affection on you because of anything that you've done. And today and tomorrow, his love for you does not change is what that means. His love does not change based on things that you do and things that you are. Because his response, you, mean, you have those days, right? You know, God, do you love me? I have those days. You have those days? God, do you love me? How can you love me? And I see what I do and I see what I think and I, I see what I say. And, and how can you love me? And you hear God's response based on this text. Well, I love you because I love you. But how can you, there's nothing good. It doesn't matter, right? Because I love you, because I love you. And the only place you can compare this is those of you parents who have kids. You loved your kids before they did anything. And I think that's the closest we have in human relationships. There's no other relationship like that. Everyone else, everyone, you don't set your affection on anyone else the way you set your affection on your children. Everyone else, including your husband or wife, who you probably love more than anyone else on the planet, you still grew to love them. You didn't love them before you knew them. Every other relationship is different. But there is this this mystical, supernatural, unexplainable love and affection that a parent has for their child when their child is in a womb. Before they ever meet their child, before they ever get to know their child, there is great love and affection for them. Friends, that is pointing you to God's love for His children. I wasn't waiting to see how my kids turned out to decide whether or not I was going to love them. Oh, thank goodness your eyes are blue, because if they weren't... (laughs) 
it, it was let me let me now see and meet this person that I have great love and affection and devotion to. That is God's heart for you. That is God's heart for you, child of God. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your great love for us. God, please keep us from misinterpreting your word. God, I feel I feel myself so much prone to read my own greatness into things and and to make things easier or more explainable. God, I just find it leads to much more questions and harder questions. And God, help us not to misinterpret your word. Help us not to look at Noah primarily as the a last man standing. Help us not to look at him as the primarily as the, the last good man, but help us to see him as the one beloved man. When, when all, including Noah, deserved not to be loved in a gracious and saving way, but all deserved, Noah and ourselves included, deserve not to be with you, God, but to be away from you. To have the fulfillment of our selfish passions. And yet, God, many of us are here today and we know that you have set your affection on us and that you love us. God, thank you. God, help us to be answerless when we try to find anything good in us that has drawn you to us. Help us to see, God, that it is, it is all of grace. It is all of grace. And because of this truth, God, may our heart for you well up even more. And may our desire for you and our passion toward you increase and increase and increase. May the more we understand that there is nothing good in us and everything good in you, may it make us all the more thankful that you have loved us. And may it make us a people who want to proclaim and proclaim and proclaim to this world how great the love of God is and that if they would turn to you, there will be mercy and forgiveness. And then, God, may we be a people who are prayerfully on our knees before you, asking that as our word of the gospel goes out, that you would come and invade the hearts of men and enable something good to come from them to choose and to love and to serve you. So may we preach the gospel more than anyone else and may we pray more than anyone else because our hope is all in you. We ask this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.